What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Support for No Excuses with John Taffer comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive buying power process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep the new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash taffer. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Welcome to No Excuses with John Taffer. Here we go again, and this is another great episode. I love Dennis Miller, who's going to be with us later. Dennis is a a linguistic type of a comedian who's actually very, very deep. So we're going to talk to Dennis Miller today. We're going to take a whole bunch of audience calls today. And I'm pretty excited because I'm actually talking to you right now from Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. And I've been here for a week doing what we call a media tour to promote this very podcast. And I want to thank everybody because we're doing absolutely awesome. In just the six weeks of this podcast, we're one of the top podcasts in America out of almost a half a million. And I'm incredibly proud of that, and I want to thank all of you. So I'm out here this week promoting the podcast, and I'm doing what we call a media tour. And when we do media tours, I thought you would find it interesting to to understand how media tours work and what's happening here. So my publicist creates about five or six straight days of media activity. So I got here into New York last Wednesday. On Thursday, I did uh, Fox. I did Fox and Friends. I then went and did Stuart Varney and then uh, took care of Fox, did Fox Digital. Friday, I went and I met with uh, uh, my uh, management team and all of my agents. And we went and I met with a bunch of advertising agencies to meet with companies regarding endorsements and such. And uh, I also did Cheddar from the uh, floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So that was my Fox conservative news sort of week. 
This week, I do CNBC from the Stock Exchange for. I'm off to one of my favorite places today. I'm going to go to Barstool Sports in about an hour. I'm going to hang with the guys for a couple hours. I'm going to do two or three podcasts, some of their radio shows, hang with Big Cat and El Presidente. And I'll do uh, Barstool Sports today. And then uh, uh, in the morning, as I mentioned, I'm at CNBC on the Stock Exchange for, which is always a blast. And uh, uh, then Wednesday, uh, I have some secret meetings, which I can't tell you about, which is uh, uh, I'm buying some brands for my distillery. And I own a distillery in Nevada, and we're working on branding for whiskey. And we're meeting with some celebrities, and we're talking to people working on branding. So in five days in New York, I will hit Fox, Cheddar, uh, uh, CNBC, uh, Barstool Sports, two ad agencies. I did Sirius Radio on Friday. I did Jenny McCarthy's show and Sway's show, two of my favorites. So when I go home Wednesday night, I would have gotten you ready. It's going to blow you away. About 200 million media pressions across all those stations. And uh, uh, those media impressions cause people like you to download the podcast and otherwise engage with me. So I'll do these media tours about three or four times a year, and they're really important to brand building. So, you know, a guy like me, I make my bar rescue shows, but every day I have to build my brand. I have to work it and work it and work it. A lot of you build your businesses. Some of you build business, uh, 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 bricks and mortar buildings. Some of you build business plans. Some of you build software. Some of you build relationships with people. We're always building something in our lives. We're building the integrity of children. We're, we're, we're building a curriculum. We're building an agenda. We're building plans. I build a brand. And brand building is very, very different than anything else that I've ever done as a professional marketing individual. Because building a brand of somebody who's living like me is an evolutionary process. And it can't be the same every day. It has to evolve or you get bored with it. So so I work very, very hard at keeping myself true, authentic, not a sellout on myself every day. But I have to work really hard at building my brand. You know, years ago, Dr. Phil said to me, John, getting on TV is one thing. Staying on TV is another. Well, Bar Rescue has been on TV now for eight years. And that's not easy, guys. So so i got to work constantly at building brand, building relevancy, and keeping what I do interesting enough to keep you all involved. Last week... I got to do something pretty special, and I don't tell people about things like this very often, but the New York Yankees are a client of mine, and I work at the, the opportunity to work with the Yankees. And months ago, eh, maybe three, four months ago, I went to the Yankees, and I gave a major speech to their sales organization and their ticket member organization, and it went really, really well. And we, we taught them about relationship building and a proper way of selling and prospecting and really got into the way that, that, that the team does business. Uh, 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 with their fans and and their season ticket members. This time, I went and I assessed all of the operations uh, in Yankee Stadium, the Legends Club, the Audi Club, and a whole bunch of others. I got to meet with the whole food and beverage team at the Yankees and assess operations and try to provide them with input. I've been to almost every baseball stadium in the country. There is something so special about Yankee Stadium. And, and if you haven't been to my Facebook page, I did post a bunch of pictures. You know, Yankee Stadium is a history that nothing else has. A- and when you look at that history, it provides a depth of branding and opportunity that better sets up the future. 
their food and beverage operations, their facility. There's nothing like Yankee Stadium. Everybody should experience a baseball game at Yankee Stadium at some point. You feel the history in the air. Which leads me to another story. A friend of mine whose name I won't mention, who's a television host, invited me out to a bar that he owns this weekend. And I went out to the bar on Long Island, and I visited its beautiful bar. And he and a partner bought this bar about two years ago. And they bought it from someone who had owned it for very many years. And this bar was opened in the 70s, and there were books written about it. It was a very, very famous place. The bar is called The Publican. And uh, I'm reading about it, and I sit down at the table, and he's looking at the menu, and I'm reading everything I can, and I'm looking at everything on the walls, on the table, and it says nothing about the history of the business. So I asked the owners, you know, why don't you tout its history? Why isn't there a book cover from one of the books that it's written in? Why don't we get the equity value out of a brand that we should? And it brings us to a lesson. History is critical. So first of all, A, you want to document your history. Uh, I made some mistakes in my career. I don't remember half the things I did when I was younger. I wish I did because a lot of them were very cool. Heck, I forgot about inventing Sunday Ticket until somebody reminded me a few years ago about it, and now everybody talks about it. Our history means everything to who we are in our future. So when you look at a business, if there's any history to that business, any elements to it that you can capture, if it isn't the business that has history, but what you do that has history, then attach to that. But the fact of the matter is history creates relevancy. And no baseball team has the historic relevancy of the New York Yankees. And when you take a look at that type of brand equity, you can't buy that. So a lot of you own businesses that have interesting histories. A lot of you are going to buy businesses that have interesting histories. A lot of you have interesting histories. Think about what it is. Create a little document for yourself. What is my history? What's important about what I've accomplished in my life that means something in the future? Now, you might say, John, I'm not on television. I'm not uh, uh, working with the New York Yankees. But you're doing something that has gotten to you to where you are today, no matter where you are today. So I'd love you to go through the exercise of saying, okay, what about my life makes me special? What about my experiences make me special? What is there in my history that makes me special? And think about that. Make a note or two. Then after that, look at that history on a piece of paper and say to yourself, okay, what did I gain from this? Why does this make me better? Why does this make me special? Why does this give me certain skills that I wouldn't have had before? And I'm taking you through a process now. The next step that I'd like you to do is I'd like you to now take the history that you've assessed and that history could go back to lessons your parents taught you, lessons you learned on sports field, lessons about teamwork, working with other people. What is it in your past that has most defined you? From that, I want you to list out what you think that past gives you as far as talent, skills, and ability to do things. Lastly, I want you to take out a piece of paper, and I want you to write down on that piece of paper a listing of what skills and assets you have as a result of your history and the things that you've learned that make you unique. And here's the whole purpose of this entire dissertation that I've given you. I want each of you to take advantage of your unfair advantage. 
Every one of you has an unfair advantage. Some of you it might be a sense of humor. Some of you it might be intelligence. Some of you it might be numbers. Some of you might be words. Some of you might just be your smile. Sometimes your advantage can be so simple, but it's the one thing that draws people to you. It's the one thing that gets you jobs. So I want to ask you a question this week. What is your unfair advantage? What is it? What is it about you that you could exploit and build upon to make your life better, to make your career go better? What is your unfair advantage? So if you can take advantage of your unfair advantage, your life will accelerate. Where some of us blow it is the fact that we don't take advantage of our advantages. We utilize what isn't to our advantage. So if I'm not great at math and I'm a great writer, then taking a job in a math function will set me up for mediocre performance for the rest of my life. How do you take advantage of your unfair advantage? And what is that unfair advantage? That's what I'd really like you to think about this week. I figured out what my unfair advantage is years ago. My unfair advantage is exactly what I'm doing now. I can talk till the cows come home. I can come up with strings of words. I can be verbally connective. I'm great at driving content. I'm great at moving words and phrases and thoughts along. That's why I've done almost 200 episodes of Bar Rescue. Think about it. It's the words. It's the phrasing. I'm a good communicator. That is my unfair advantage. And I figured out how to take advantage of that unfair advantage. I do public speaking. I have my podcast, I have my television show, all of the things that I do well, whether it's interviews, uh, uh, doesn't matter what it is. It all comes back to that advantage that I have in communication skills. So what is your unfair advantage? And are you moving your life in a way that takes advantage of that unfair advantage? So I want to leave you with something that's really, really important. I'm here in New York this week on a media tour, strictly to exploit my unfair advantage. You're getting up today, you're going to work, you're driving in your car on your way to or from somewhere. Whatever it is you're doing now, I'd like you to ask yourself a question. Does your path take advantage of your unfair advantage? Think about that. Dennis Miller did when he was really young. And Dennis Miller, his unfair advantage was the fact that he wanted to be a comedian so badly He saw some comedians that inspired something in him. He thought he was funny when he was with his parents and his family, and he thought he could do it. But what's amazing about Dennis's story, the first two times that Dennis Miller went to a comedy club to step on stage, he literally blacked out, fainted, dropped. His unfair advantage of being a comedian, and he's certainly one of the best, he's won all the awards to prove it. Dennis's unfair advantage as a comedian did not come easy. So just because it's your advantage doesn't mean you're going to get there any easier than anyone else. But if you live your life and don't take advantage of your unfair advantage, then you're ripping yourself off of all of the great opportunities that could lay before you. There's a little lesson in this podcast this week. We talked about the fact that brand building is critical. Even if you're not famous, you still are a brand. 
People look at you and think certain things about you. They have certain expectations about you. Think of yourself as a brand and build equity in yourself. Equity of honesty, equity of performance. Build brand equity in yourself. And next, determine what the hell is your unfair advantage. And how do you take advantage of that unfair advantage? That's the message from this week's podcast. Dennis is going to help send it when the two of us talk in a few minutes. And you know what? I don't even know what audience calls I'm getting yet, but I'll bet you anything. A bunch of those calls are going to be about people seeking out their advantage and their opportunity. But we don't use that word advantage. I want you to now. I want you to take the word dreams and turn them to goals. We don't have dreams. We have goals. And we work our equity in ourselves and we take advantage of our unfair advantage. If you can do those things, watch what happens. It worked for me. worked for a lot of my friends. Think about this. Don't let this message go away. <laughs> when you talk about taking advantage of your unfair advantage, I got to tell you, Dennis Miller has done that really well. He's not only a comedian. He's an NFL commentator. He does news shows. Dennis has won so many comedy awards and is involved in so many different areas of the business. This is a man who understands himself. He understands what his advantage is, and he's done a fantastic job taking advantage of his unfair advantage. That's why most of us have heard of Dennis Miller. He's a household name, and he should be. That's why I'm so excited to have him here today. So right now we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back with Dennis Miller. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. This is cool. Hyundai has completely modernized the car buying experience. They call it the Shopper Assurance Program. Customers will feel more confident, respected, in control, and at ease. That's the whole purpose of the program. Shopper Assurance will save you time, eliminate haggling, streamline the process, and reduce the worry. The Streamline program consists of four key elements. One, transparent pricing. Knowing the price is always better than guessing the price. Two, a flexible test drive. They'll bring the car to you, and you can test drive it at your convenience. Three, streamline purchase. It takes the paperwork out of the paperwork by allowing you to do it online. And four, this is the best of all, a three-day worry-free exchange. Gives you complete peace of mind. You can exchange the vehicle if you're not happy. Car buying made easier is possible with Hyundai Shopper Assurance. And you can find out more at HyundaiUSA.com Shopper Assurance. So go there right now, HyundaiUSA.com Shopper Assurance, and find out about the Shopper Assurance program. You'll be really glad you did. It's a very cool way to buy a car. Everybody knows I'm a car guy. But here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your entire interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Yeah, you can. Well, here's another tip you might also not know about. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with True Car, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying, and that's really important. 
They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with True Car certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. I want to tell you all a secret. I'm looking for a marketing person in my company right now, and you know where I went to post a job? LinkedIn. <laughs> That's who I use to find management and marketing people for my own company. After all, the right hire can make a huge impact on your business, and it's so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual? You could try posting on job boards. I've done that. But can you really be sure the right person sees your job? I don't get that many interviews that way. Instead, find a person who will help grow your business. That's what I do, and I use LinkedIn. It's the world's largest professional network. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. And LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based upon more of who they really are with their skill set and their personality and their background. So using LinkedIn like I do, and, I, and check it out, I got a listing on there right now. This way your job gets seen by the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't really visited the top job boards, but nine out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. So right now, hurry to linkedin.com slash Taffer and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash Taffer to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash Taffer. Terms and conditions apply. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Dennis, you know, I, I don't want to uh, uh, make you blush, and I know you don't blush that easily, but normally I get a bio report when I do one of these interviews. Yours is like 90 pages, <laughs> and it's I've incredible. I've had a lot of the, shows shot the, out from under me, Johnny. It leads to an eclectic CV. It, it does, and when, when I look at the stuff that you've done, it's incredible, but you know what really caught my eye? And, and first, I got to tell you, I'm a huge fan, and you know, I grew up uh, being best friends with Buddy Hackett. And Buddy Hackett, I used to go to his house all the time on Whittier Drive, and I know you're probably smiling when I say Buddy. He was one of the greatest comedians of his time. And Buddy had an amazing love of Jonathan Winters, who is your favorite um, comedian, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, when I was growing up, uh, people always say, when did you first think you might want to try comedy? And I remember that was the beauty of Jonathan. He was instantly translatable to all ages and probably all cultures because he uh, he was so... Uh, out there. Uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, you know, visually and stuff like that. And I remember being a kid and watching him at the end of his show. They would toss him an item and he would ad-lib with it. And they threw him a half-inflated uh, tire inner tube. And he bent it in half <laughs> and pretended he had been swallowed by a whale. And I think that was the first time I laughed so hard that I thought, geez, I'd like to be whatever that is. What's it called? A comedian? I'd like to be that. that what about when he went on Carson in, in the sailor suit? <laughs> Yeah, he's uh, Johnny's a piece of work, and it was so odd to end up up here having him as a regular breakfast mate. It was uh, it's weird that, like Jerry Garcia said, what a long, strange trip life is. But I lived up in Santa Barbara, and I'd be in the corner pharmacy, and I'd see John. I didn't say anything for a while because I was too nervous, and then he finally came up to me one day, and then we'd probably have breakfast once every month or two. Lovely guy. Wow, how did it feel to know that he knew who you were? Um, well, it, it's surreal, isn't it? I mean, you know, they're because uh, at that point, when I see Jonathan across the restaurant at the breakfast place, I immediately become that kid 
looking at yeah. uh, him on TV. It's not like I'm an adult comedian. It's sort of like fanboy. But I think enough of him, and I've read enough of him. And usually when I see famous people, I try to stay out of it unless it's somebody that I think I'll kick myself in perpetuity if I don't say hi. But usually if they're eating or something like that, I just think, God, they're, they're met out. They've met enough people that don't need to meet you. So I stay away. But certainly I'm glad he said hi because then, as I said, I grew to know him over two or three year period and uh he really was a a sympathetic soul he had a sweet side to him you, you know what uh oh yeah i loved him in mad mad world he had the greatest line of all time to ethel merman when he said to her and you ladies should just drop dead <laughs> <laughs> I, Great just, line. I love how unhinged he is in the uh the uh the gas station with i think it's arnold stang <laughs> who's one of the guys but he looks so unhinged it's like uh it's like Orson Welles in Citizen Kane when his wife leaves him and he goes uh, completely bats and destroys her room. Johnny has a bit of that dervish look in his face as he tears down that gas station. He's so, and, uh, and and when as he, first comes as he drives away, the last comes, wall falls down, remember? <laughs> yeah. When he first comes upon Phil Silvers on that bad bike, God, that makes me laugh. Oh, yeah, riding that little bent bicycle. If anybody hasn't seen it's a mad, 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 mad world, you got to get it and see it. It's the last great movie of its type, in my view. They've tried to remake movies like it, but they'll never be anything like that film. I'm sure you Yeah, they did something. I remember Lovitz was in something called Rat Race, and periodically they'll try that thing again. But you have to remember, part of that was uh, Mike Todd did it with Around the World in 80 Days, and obviously Stanley Kramer did yep. it with Mad, 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 Mad World. Is they literally were able to get every big star in the world to do a cameo in that half. That that made the film. Remember Jerry Lewis's cameo in uh, Mad, 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 Mad World for a second? No, tell me, what was he again? Was he in, uh, 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 I remember uh, Spencer Tracy uh, tried to throw his hat onto the hat rack in the office, and it went out the window. And Jerry Lewis oh, drove God, over it in the car. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was in the film for like four seconds. But it was a great scene. And Don Knotts had a cameo, too, remember, with Phil Silvers? Don Knotts was driving a car, and Phil Silvers got into the car and said, the feds are following me. Remember the helicopter was flying? He threw Don Knotts out of the car, and he stole his car. <laughs> great movie. Again, if nobody's seen It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, you've got to see it. it it's, it's one of my favorite all-time movies. Yeah, because and try to explain Dick Sean to young people. They don't quite get it, but I'm telling you, folks, Dick Sean was... Something else. Was, I met his son at Buddy's house. real before Andy Kaufman was surreal. That's right. That's right. Dick was something else, boy. I met his son at Buddy's house one day many years ago, and he had a lot of the traits of his father. You know what I find amazing about you, Dennis? And, and I've been a fan of yours your entire career. And, you know, I find you incredibly courageous. And, and you know, your comedy, you don't go rely on sex. You don't rely on cursing. You, you really focus hard on creating comedy that, that requires thought. And that's really courageous. And to me, you're one of the most courageous comics I've ever seen in that regard. And what's surprising to me is how scared you were in the beginning. I was reading about your first open mic nights. And how you blacked out at your first two attempts to go on stage, that it was so terrifying for you. Speak about that for a minute. Well, it's an unnatural act, and I was never a very bodacious young man, but I remember writing some jokes for some people who had come through Pittsburgh, and then I saw one of the comedians, and I, you know, I won't say that's unimportant, but he did it on The Tonight Show, and I remember Johnny Carson pounding the desk, and I was sitting in a $60 a month apartment with a uh, hot plate to cook on 
watching somebody with an idea of mine that I had sold them. It was nothing more than that, but I do remember mm-hmm. thinking, well, I'm going to have to force feed myself this uh, this uh, presenter thing because I, I don't have this sort of ego to sit out here and broke, bereft, and, uh, you know, <laughs> unsated and watch other people make Johnny cards and laugh with things I thought of. So that's when I started doing comedy. And at first I was just a little... Vomitous, as uh, a lot of people are. It's an unnatural act, but uh, that didn't last all that long. I don't want to make it too dramatic. It's uh, at some point you think uh, it's not Vietnam, you know. Shut up, tell the jokes. You know, it's interesting. I went through that in TV. You know, the first few episodes of Bar Rescue, I puked before I went on stage, and I know Ozzy did that before he would go on stage years ago. It's interesting that you you would have a love for something that was so difficult for you to do in the beginning, and it speaks so much to to passion overcoming one's ability at that moment. Well, I I don't want to make that more than it is. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I've always approached comedy as a job. I, I don't have a the burning thing that some people do. I just did, did know as I watched another person say something, I thought, well, I guess I have to be the conduit because that's rankling me. But I, I'd never been one of these kids who was 12 years old and doing hell's a popping in the basement at the holidays and shit like that. You know, it's... Uh, I like to write jokes, and I had to become the guy to tell them. And uh, as far as uh, stand-up goes, I'm fond of it. I've had a great uh, good fortune with it, but uh, I, I never <laughs> – I didn't burn to do it like some people, but it is a fun <laughs> job. When did you find that you were becoming political in your humor? Um, well, once you're doing Saturday Night Live Weekend Update, you know, people always think that it was some um, – that's your job. You know, if you want to go in and say, I'd rather not do political humor, you can, they'll say, okay, great, don't do the news. So a bit of it then, and then I'd, uh, you know, then you become known as a current topic, uh, you know, uh, topical comedian. So I just pulled on that thread. I'm, I'm always fascinated when people talk about how they'd like to be known by the public. I always, I, I was shocked that anybody cared. So when I found a hook, I just... Uh, stayed with it. I know it doesn't sound exciting, but then all of a sudden people said, well, he does funny jokes about the events in the news. I started doing it. I think the first time I was probably uh, didn't betray, you know, that I was completely liberal, and I've never been completely liberal. I'm socially liberal, but I'm fiscally, and uh, at least as far as the war on terror stuff like that goes, I'm conservative. I remember they made fun of James Stockdale when Ross Perot mm-hmm. picked him as his VP, and I remember I didn't like that by liberals. I thought that they were acting fast and loose with a man who, quite frankly, we were lucky to have run as a vice president. I don't care if he's bad on TV. TV's crap. So yeah. I remember when they started making fun of him, I thought uh, this, the liberal room might be getting a little too hip for me. It's interesting. So you you made that shift. You almost sound a little like Charles Krauthammer, who made the shift at about the same time in his life. But there's a quote here that you said that I was just hysterical when I read it. When you wrote, I don't respect Bill Clinton. And I love this quote that you gave. Clinton's my age. I know how full of shit I am. So I look at him and think, I know you. You're the guy who used to tap the keg. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, listen, I'm, I might excoriate other people, but I'm brutal of myself, too. And I know how I've bullshitted my way through life. Not lying about core values, but acting brassier than I am at times and acting more demure than I am at times. And it's all a negotiation through a, uh, you know, a, a sargasso sea 
a minefield adult life, especially when you choose to become an entertainer. So when I looked at Clinton, I used to always think, oh, I know this guy, for God's sake, he is completely full of it. But then I had to at least, in all fairness, put the coat on. He's as full of it as I am. And he was. Boy, was he. You know, it's funny. I was reading an article today that Hillary and Spielberg are creating a documentary on women voters. And back in the days when women had a fight That's for the so vote. That's so ironic because single women used to hear the theme from jazz when Clinton would come into the room. It's true. It's true. Now, now of course, she, she speaks for what she's spoken against in many, many times. But we raised an interesting topic that I've been looking forward to talking to you about this week, knowing that you were coming on. How do you feel about politicians leaving politics and going into media and then leveraging that public service credibility to convey ideas? I could care less. I, you know, politicians bother me. I, I think there's very, let's say there's 535 people up on that hill. Is that it? 435 and 100? Yep, yep 435. I'd say there's probably like 35 people that are admirable, ethical, and would probably leave after their terms were over and are citizens who come in and help with the country for a while. I'd say 500 of them. Uh, weren't good on a musical instrument, weren't good in sports, and this is their last chance to get laid. I don't respect them. Uh, as yeah. far as leaving leaving politics to get to TV, whatever they want. You don't have to watch anybody on TV. Of course, this has turned into a whiny country. Find who you want to watch on TV and watch them. Uh, if you don't want to watch TV, don't watch it. If you want to watch it and be perpetually bothered all day, find the person that's antithetical to you and watch it. All I know is this entire culture has gotten so soft and whiny. I used to always theorize we were this soft and whiny, but now that social media is here, I get reminded of it a hundred times a day, what a whiny, uh, how people define themselves through feeling aggrieved. It's, it's, it's unbecoming to me. So I don't care who goes on TV. It's not like TV is a sacred kingdom or politics is a sacred kingdom. They're almost hand in glove. Yeah, uh, I know. You know, Which like is unfortunate. Yeah, there's no separation between the two anymore. Is it unfortunate, though, or is it a trifle that I can't believe people get hung up on? It's not unfortunate to me. I don't care who wants to do TV. I don't care who wants to do politics. I just know my head. I don't respect many of them. And I don't go around thinking it's sad. I wish the world was this and that. But I, I can't believe we've gotten to that point where people can sit at home. And I wish it wasn't like this. I wish we all got. When did that ever happen? When when was this time I keep hearing about? When was it during Attila the Hun? Was it Dickensian England? When was this a big happy camp? Boy, I can't remember. Can you? I don't remember a big happy camp it is at a, any point. It is endemic to humankind as breathing, eating, procreating. Schadenfreude is as endemic to this uh, the human condition as anything else. People love to butt heads with people they disagree with. You could come back to this planet 10,000 years from now, and we might have evolved to the point where we have one big eyeball in the middle of our head, and we look like fish again. And I guarantee you those fish eyeball people will still be butting up against other fish eyeball people that piss them off. Do you worry about where we're going as a society? <laughs> Do you accept the discourse as, as constructive and laying the pavement for a future effectively, or do you see the discourse as a negative? I, I don't even, you know, as soon as I hear discourse, I sort of glaze over. You mean the people, I, I'm really just being serious. I reduce it down. I, people have always been usually 50-50 on things. They've always kind of disagreed with the other person. 
Uh, the only thing that's changed is I do think we're privy to everybody's uh, anger in the moment due to social media and stuff like that. That's true. That didn't exist before. If you were Gutenberg and you were pissed off, uh, you know, somebody in the monastery was doing calligraphy, you had to cut out a wood block and print up a mantra about it. But nowadays, somebody can go on and bleep out how they seconds. hate somebody's guts and wish them done within eight seconds. But do I think anything's really changed outside of that? No, I, I just don't understand this thing about us all coming together. I think social media has allowed us to all come together as one and realize there was no reason whatsoever, quite frankly, for us to all come together as one. On social media, I think it's proven that we're not going to all come together as one, I think, uh, more than anything. Yeah, but I don't, uh, listen, other than than, uh, putting a security system in, and I guess some people choose to go out and get a a handgun license to protect themselves, do I worry? Um, I don't know. I've always been cautious when I'm out, but I was cautious when I was out before politics. I don't know. Uh, you, you, You have a good street radar when you're out. You should use your head. But uh, other than that, do I sit at home? Like I said, I'm 64. What? If I got 85, I'd be happy. What's the actuary table? 78? So I'll, I'll take 85. 90, complete gravy. How many of these last 20 years do I want to piss around sitting at home all day wondering why Joe Scarborough said that? It's insanity. Who cares? You know, I, I, I find your attitude actually really refreshing because people think it's so heavy. They get so involved in these words. You know what else is interesting is the news cycle is so quick today. What they say now is almost gone five minutes from now most of the time anyway. So it, it doesn't seem to live on like it used yeah, to. Like, so the it, words it, it, become it, less important when they're, when they're, when they're shorter lived. Um, well, like I said, in, in retrospect, Andy Warhol was a pessimist when he said everybody would be famous for 15 minutes in the future. Everybody's quite frankly famous around 15 seconds. And I don't know yeah. where it's ratcheting down from that, but I'm not going to sit there with a jeweler's loop and watch it minimize itself. It's a, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty happy. I've got two sons I adore, a wife, the most beautiful woman I ever met, married me. We have fun together. I can't, I can't get up and follow it all day. I don't want to. I don't, I don't really yeah. care that much. Boy, that that positive uh, uh, message is really powerful, and you know it's interesting. In your in your comedy, you get so frustrated at moments, but in reality, you're not, are you? No, no. Like I said, I, when I was young, I had the. Uh, sometimes when you're young and you're full of yourself, you have the freedom to act like uh, noble, or that your pain <laughs> is precious, or defines me. And you get older, you just say, "How's about I wake up today and smile more than I don't?" How's about that? <laughs> I was about to have a good meal and go cruise the Danube on a houseboat for a week or two and quit whining about what's wrong and kind of get up and take a deep uh, imbibe of it all. It's funny when I watch you and, and I'm on Fox all the time, just like it's like you were. Matter of fact, I'm doing Fox Thursday. But, you know, you, you seem like you're angry and frustrated in your comedy. But in reality, you're actually very much at peace with everything going on around you and, and your own existence. It's fascinating. Well, it's an act, you know. I believe everything I say, but it's like I, I can't go up on stage and be Marianne Williamson and talk about how mellow it all is. I do political jokes, and certain people do piss me off. Pelosi, people like that. I'm just saying, I do notice a lot of people, and I think you would notice it too, who are more fixated on this whole thing than they should be on a day-to-day basis, who literally are possessed by it to some degree and can't release themselves from it, and that seems like a waste of time to me. So, yeah, yeah. well, if I have a special to put together, or I'm on a rally, and he says, I want you to talk about Chuck Schumer, can I, I write a couple cranky jokes? Sure. But do I think about it until earlier that day when he says we're going to talk about Chuck Schumer? 
No, I don't. I, well, I've lived my life, so I haven't had to run into guys like Chuck Schumer, quite frankly. Well, that, I think that's a good way to live your life. Also, talk about comedy. Talk about some low-hanging fruit. I mean, <laughs> a lot of material there. Okay, let's talk yeah. about what is important, Dennis. Let's I talk about time for football. One more here, brother. My kids get married today, and I got to do my show on time, so I've got to uh, start at noon. So I got time for one more question. I'm gonna jump over and do my podcast and. Head out the door to my boys' nuptials. Wow, that's exciting, Dennis. And by the way, I listen to Dennis Miller option all the time, buddy. I love your podcast. What do you think about what's going on in football? The lower ratings? This is my last question for you. The lower ratings? Well, that kid in Minnesota had a funny hat. Did you see the safety? That kid who brings the wood. Uh, There's a kid who plays safety for Minnesota, and he showed up at training camp the other day, and uh, he had a hat on that said, Make football violent again. (laughs) <laughs> which makes me laugh so hard. And I know, I, I know the kid's going to get fine. But listen, uh, it, it's not like, um, it, it would be like watching the movie Gladiator to have Maximus go into HR and whine about the rules. It's football. Uh, do I like the fact you're not allowed to leave your feet? Yeah, I think that's a great role. Do I like some of the other things about it that, are, you know, um, would keep somebody... A little safer, yeah. Do I ever think it's going to be completely safe? No. And do I Should think it be? No. at the end of the day cares about that? No. Because, you know, the only thing the players have ever said, the players know what they sign up for. They dig it. They, they really do. There's a couple guys in there who don't dig it, and they're doing it for money. But most of the guys are big guys who like to, like to rock other big guys. Well, the only thing the players are uniform in is they've gone to Goodell and said, listen, we can't heal up by Thursday. We feel that's unsafe. Can you do us that square? Forget about all the stuff about the, you know, the rules and going over plays like there's a Bruder film and a replay tunnel. How's about we just don't play on Thursday? And that's the one thing he said, screw you, you're playing on Thursday. So every time I hear Goodell talking about how he cares, he doesn't care. He's a $40 million a functionary who has to get to sleep at night by deluding himself that he cares. And he probably does, probably does a good job. He seems like he's one of those guys who thinks he's the best guy in the world. All I know is this. He could have not changed anything in that game except when the players said, we'd like to not play Thursday. He would have said, okay, we'll give you that. If that's what you guys feel is unsafe, we'll do that. And he didn't do it. So the rest is an act. I agree with you. By the way, I was on a board of the NFL for three years, and I invented Sunday Ticket. But that's another conversation that we'll have one well, day. Well, good buddy. for you. I hope you had a piece. And I'll tell you what, that might have been a few years ago when they spelled B-O-A-R-D, because the board of the NFL now is B-O-R-E-D. So I've just made the yeah, game yeah. too neurotic. Play it or don't play it. But yeah. you know, I don't need to see kids dragged off into a tent where I never see them again. And I think the concussion protocol at this point is they get the kid in the tent and they say, hey, I want to see if you're dinged. What constitutes a catch? in the NFL today. Nobody can answer it, so nobody comes back in. I got a rock, brother. It's good to talk to you. Same here. Let's do it again another time, Dennis. Ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Miller, don't miss his podcast. doesn't get married every week, so next time we'll do it more. It's, it's a deal. And we're taking a quick pause for thanks to our sponsor. You know, I love technology, and in my offices, I make sure that we always have business class PCs. When it comes to technology, the difference between consumer grade and business class PCs is just as huge as economy and first class seating is on an airplane. There's a huge difference. Performance is much greater on a business class PC. Support every HP Elite PC comes with Elite Premium Support. 
Software and security is far better. Design, graphic capability, reliability is far better. If you're not going to HP to get your own business class PC, you're missing out on so many creative and performance opportunities. Remember, HP, reliability, design, software, and security, get out of the consumer-grade processing world and get in to business class PCs. And you can do that by simply going to hp.com slash Taffer. Right now, you can get an extra 10% off on select 8th generation Intel-powered HP PCs by going to hp.com and using the code Taffer hp.com slash taffer but you got to get there by september 17th so do it now dennis's interview surprised me a little bit i thought he would be more emotionally involved in politics maybe there's a lesson for all of us here maybe we all need to just calm the hell down (laughs) and understand that there's going to be political bickering for as long as we live and as long as our great, great, great grandchildren live. We're not going to change that. But what we can change is the way we communicate with each other. And the fact is we can disagree, but there's no question we can be kinder to each other. And Dennis's attitude towards political discourse really opened my eyes. You know, if I go on Fox News, I get a lot of hate posts. How can you go to Fox News? How can you do that? How can you do that? How can you do that? The next week, I'll go to CNBC, and I'll get hate mail. How can you go there? How can you? The worst hate mail I ever got was uh, months ago, I posted a picture of Whoopi Goldberg and myself. And when I posted that picture of Whoopi Goldberg and myself, the amount of hate posts and comments that I got were just absolutely incredible because Whoopi Goldberg has a political posture that some people don't like. I don't love all of her political postures either, but I love Whoopi. Whoopi is my friend. And there's a lesson to be learned in this. Why can't we just calm the hell down and each of us take an attitude to the discourse that Dennis has? And I suggest we think about that attitude a little bit because we can talk about politics. We don't need to scream about it. We can embrace each other. We don't need to hate each other. And if somehow We can be inspired by the fact that this is going to go on year after year, day after day. How do we get out of that emotional roller coaster and how do we be more positive with each other? I think there's a lesson in this interview with Dennis Miller in that regard. Dennis, thank you, buddy. I think we all need to think about political discourse and the fact that maybe we should calm the hell down like Dennis did. And now I get to come to the best part that I look forward to more than anything else, and that is your phone calls. So I love talking to you. If you want to talk to me on a podcast, it's so easy. Just send an email to podcast at johntafford.com, podcast at johntafford.com. Send me a note. Let me know what you'd like to talk about. We set up a call. I call you while I'm doing the podcast, and we get to talk. I'll help you talk about anything that you'd like to talk about. You want to talk about your personal life. You want to talk about your professional life. You want to talk about opening a business. You want to talk about anything I'm game. I call it thin ice. So let's make these calls great. Send me some notes, the podcast at johntaffer.com, and you could be a participant in the show also. So KC, we got some good callers this week, you told me. Yep, that's right, John, we do. We've got Bobby from Tampa, one of your biggest fans who has some bar rescue questions. All right. You're on with John Taffer, Bobby. Hey, hey Bobby. John. How's How it doing? going? Good, thanks. I understand you had some bar rescue questions for me. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I do. Um, 
Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you. Uh, your show came out when I was a new bartender, and I got to learn a lot from that. And it actually helped me a lot with bartending. So I really appreciate that. Oh, um, that's great, buddy. I love hearing things like that. It makes it, you know, it makes me fight that much harder next week. So thanks. Yeah, some of the stuff was just really amazing. So, uh, you have a couple questions about the show. When do you give the staff notice that you're showing up? Because in the show, um, you know, they they do the surveillance and then you show up. You see something you don't like, and then you guys, you know, you're like, shut it down. You're not going home for three days because you got to clean. And I've always wondered, do like, are they able to tell their families ahead of time, like a week or two in advance, that you might be showing up at any time? So that way, hey, I'm not going home for 24 hours. You, you, sure, you sort of got it. So let me give you the inside scoop on this. So what happens is to keep it real, we have to mess with them. Because if people know I'm coming, their bar is going to pe- be packed. And it's not going to be indicative of their real lives. You see what I mean? So we, we want to mm-hmm. be discreet when we come in. So typically what we'll do is we have to mess with them. They have to think I'm coming either the next day or I was going to come the last day or I'm at another bar and we do things to, to, to uh, 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 be a little sneaky. For example, we'll hang some extra lights inside the bar and then we'll have we'll send the crew in to start pulling those lights down and we'll tell them John Taffer left. He's, he's, uh, he went to another location. He's not going to be doing this one. And we'll start to pull the lights down and they'll think the cameras have stopped and that we're not doing the show. Then it gets real because sometimes they were starting to fake it for TV. Other times they think I'm coming in four hours and I show up four hours early, catch them with their pants down. Other times they think I'm coming four hours early. I walk in four or five hours late, catch them with their pants down. Sometimes I'll make my cameras disappear that are on people's shoulders. So we're just using the hidden cameras in the building so so that I can get reality out of it that way. So it's really a challenge. We, we have to do some sneaky things to keep it real and to have people not know where we are. So when I walk in, that reaction is real. The other thing is uh, they know that, that, that I might come and the condition of me possibly coming is their time commitment, which is really what you were talking about, Bobby. And that is they're committed for five days time and they are on call 24 hours a day for those five days. So if they want to remodel, if they want Taffer to come to their property, that's the commitment that they need to make. And uh, they do. Now, sometimes they'll get fired the first day or they'll be sent home and they're told never to come back and things happen. But I don't know what I'm walking into. I mean, a place could be a complete disaster. Uh, uh, they could be completely untrained. The owner could be the problem. Maybe it's the employees that are the problem. But, you know, th- th- it's going to be long days uh, when I get in there. And that's what they are. They run about 12, 14 hours each day. Does that answer your question for you? Oh, it does, actually, because that's something I've always wondered. Thank you so much for for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Okay, John, we've got Trevor in New York, who is an investor in a bar with other partners, and his partners aren't talking. All right, Trevor, you're on with John Taffer. John Taffer. You invested in a bar? I'm invested in a brewery and tap room. And uh, I want to preface by saying that the two main guys are great guys. They just don't have a lot of retail experience. Uh, we got a, a, a finance guy and a beer guy, and uh, they're great at both of those things. But the retail side of things has been a bit of a struggle. So uh, you guys losing money? I haven't seen the book personally, but that's my understanding. Oh, do they have books? Uh, yeah, uh, and their communication with investors is not spectacular. So you've invested your money in this business. You think they're good guys, but they won't share the financials with you. 
How does a good guy not share his financials with you, but he took your money? I don't get that. That's that's totally fair, and I totally agree with you. It's on you, man. Either you hold them accountable or you don't. You can't solve the problems if you don't know what they are. So do you have revenue problems or cost problems? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, what is our sales right. per foot? I mean, what I is our profit per foot? Yeah, it's revenue. We, uh, we uh, have a very happy customers, just not enough of them. Well, if they're so happy, how come there's and, not more of them? That's a contradiction, though. Trevor, it, let me, do, I, I, do, you, yeah. do you know that? Do you know how many oh, customers yeah. come through no, the I place? No, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm a huge bar fan, raised the bar, Taffer Dynamics. I've provided all these materials to these guys, trying to get them to, you know, do what you do. And uh, it's just kind of fallen on deaf ears, I guess. So you're in, you're in a terrible spot. Because yeah, you I have am, to cause something really to change. Do from you, an if, operational standpoint, because I'm just an investor. You know, an investor has uh, is empowered. There's a fiduciary responsibility that somebody has the minute they take investor money. And did your totally. investment? Are you a note holder? Is it debt or is it equity? Equity. So you own equity in your business. Well, they have yep. to provide you with financials. I mean, that's just they have yep. to provide you with financials. So yeah, you. To make them successful sometimes, no different than Bar Rescue. Look, on Bar Rescue, i got to be an ass sometimes to make them successful. This might yeah. be your Bar Rescue moment. You I, might need to send I'm, them a legal letter I'm, demanding I agree. receipt of financials. Fine. And I've, got, I've got another uh, investor that, that is right there with me, and, and uh, we talked about you know, giving you a call. And, and uh, So, yeah, this is where we're at. How much, money, how much equity do, do you own together? I have 5%. Okay, and the other investor has? 2%, I believe. Okay. Well, you know, that's enough equity. You're entitled to have your financials. There's tax consequences from your equity, isn't there? Right? You either have a tax write-off, you have income to deal with. They must provide you with your financials. If they don't provide you with the financials, there's a reason for that. And that would scare the shit out of me. That means that you're probably in a ticking time bomb and that this place might be closer to closing than you know. I certainly hope that's not the case, but that's how I feel, yeah. So you, so you have to act, and if they're good guys, they need a kick in the ass. Look, on Bar Rescue, there's a lot of good guys that are in a bad place. Right. And I, and I beat the heck out of them, and I still get my hug in the end, don't I? Yep. So, Trevor, you can save this place and get a hug in the end, even if you're an ass, to get there. <laughs> I'll yeah, I, I, and I, I've been known to be that, so yeah. Write a yeah, letter, uh, demand the financials. I would give them 30 days to provide you with financials. I would demand a partner's meeting to review those financials together. From those financials, you'll see where the problems are. Uh, uh, you got to see how much payroll they're pulling out of the business relating to other people. Are there any bonuses? Are there cars running? Through? You, you don't know the answers to these things. No. I mean, they could have six don't. personal cars running through the business. Yeah, we don't. We don't know. You've got to know. And yeah, being an investor right. isn't easy, buddy. You know, you put yep. the money in, that, now you got to manage that money. Yeah. If you don't write that letter and you don't act to make this better, then when you lose your money, don't blame them. It's on you. Right. Right. I agree. Go shut them down, buddy. Take care. I will do that, sir. Thank you so much for the advice. Well, as I wrap this up sitting here in New York, I want to thank Dennis Miller. Dennis, that was a great interview. I want to thank my callers and I want to remind you. Send me emails to podcast at johntaffer.com if you'd like to participate in the show. And please go to podcastone.com, download 
and subscribe to my podcast right now and you'll get them automatically every Tuesday. You can't go wrong. You can do that at podcastone.com. You can do it at Apple Podcasts or just send me a note, podcast at johntaffer.com and I'll send you back the link one way or the other. We're going to get you to subscribe to this podcast. You listen today. Don't miss it next week. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. You knew the risks when you decided to drive drunk. There could be a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But that didn't stop you, did it? You knew you could get arrested. You could incur huge legal expenses. And you could possibly even lose your job. You were well aware of the consequences of driving drunk. But one thing's for sure. You were wrong when you said it was no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. This message brought to you by NHTSA.